Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Jeremy from Utah. And I am Ken from Indiana. And today we are going to get complimentary. Do you know how that's spelled, Ken? Can I buy a vowel? Yes, you will need a vowel. Complimentary with an E, not complimentary with an I in the middle, with an E in the middle. Complimentary. Are you excited or are you nervous? I am all kinds of excited. Calvinism is much false doctrine as a woman preacher. Well, of course, in fundamentalism, you define everything as a gospel issue. This is a true mark of Christian maturity to discern the difference of issues. I got an idea. That's not wrong with anybody who thinks they got another idea. There's a lot of different understandings of what the days are in Genesis 1 and to what degree evolution was part of how God created things. I have disagreements with him in some areas, but those are adiaphora, those are side issues, many important issues. So many Bible doctrines are ruined when we use the wrong words. This is why it's so critical that we use only the King James Bible. You gotta have that right or you're out of here. Pray God that I don't take every minor thing and make a major thing out of it. Nothing divides like truth. I respect them as brothers in the Lord with whom I have some strong differences, but they have a big problem with me. Is there a way that we can work together? I think fundamentally we have to say yes. Christians can disagree and still kick it. All right. Well, welcome back to Do Theology. Uh, This is the last episode that we will be recording for season two. We have this episode and the next week our interview with Samuel Say from slowtowrite.com. And that will conclude season two. And we will be back at you next year with season three when we have... Uh, it, who knows what the world will look like when we yeah. start season three? <laughs> um, I don't. We don't know what the White House will look like. We don't know what the culture will look like. We don't know if we will be socialist Venezuela by that point, um, or if everything, if God decides to show yeah. His grace and everything goes back to the way it was in the beginning of 2020. Um, the rapture of His church, man. That's yeah, it's true. What, we could be months into the tribulation uh, when season three comes out, except there would be no season three because we're not going to be here for the tribulation. Isn't that right, Ken? That's right. Because <laughs> we're not wrong on eschatology of anything yeah. that we might be wrong on. Yeah, there are lots of things where we might be wrong, but end times is not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, enough of that. <laughs> Let's talk about something much less controversial men and women yeah. and their roles in the home and church. <laughs> we we have been upfront from the beginning. I mean, I think our very first episode when we kind of gave our backgrounds on uh, where we are theologically, we said we're complementarian, uh, meaning we believe that God has designed men and women differently with different roles in the home and in the church. And so today's episode, we want to talk about that. We want to define what that means, talk about the other main view that kind of butts up against that, and then walk through some application uh, for how this plays out in our relationships in the home and church. Lots of different places where tension can arise, and lots of places where tension has arisen, um, and especially recent years with... uh, you take a look at different denominations out there that are wrestling through this, particularly the Southern Baptist Convention and what they're going to do with uh, people who have a different view of these things. Um, 
because there's some who want to fight and there are some who just want the whole institution to change. But we're non-denominational, so we have freedom just to view this from the outside and talk about it on our podcast. That's right. I say too, we get uh, we get feedback about our chart that's uh, that's available at dotheology.com slash chart. If you are not aware of this chart, what have you been doing your whole life? Yeah, if you've been aware of this podcast and haven't looked yeah. at the chart, your life is a little bit confused. You need to look at the chart first. Yes. So in the chart, we have gender roles in the first column. And we have received feedback at different times about that, that maybe that shouldn't be in the first column, maybe it should be in the second column. But usually I, th- I think that when people make that kind of suggestion, they're misunderstanding what we're saying the first column represents. Most people, I think, think of the first column in terms of who is saved and who is not saved. Yeah. And that's not how we're viewing the first column. Well, not all things in the first column, because right, obviously yes. yeah, the gospel's in there, um, right? And if you deny the gospel, you are not saved. Um, but then you start getting into this kind of like gradient scale of where's heresy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and and is there such a thing as heresy that is not damnable? And I can't remember if we've brought this up on the podcast before, but um, we touched- that is an. In- yeah. Interesting conversation. We touched on it just a little bit with the, the Toby Sumter interview. Okay. Was was just a, we just kind of hinted yeah. at it. And I know it's something that we've intended to bring up and have a do a more a fuller discussion on, but it's a big yeah. topic. Yeah, that that conversation with Toby Sumter. Go back and listen to what he said about G.K. Chesterton and some Roman Catholic views. Uh yeah. and you won't know what to believe about anything anymore <laughs> if you're persuaded. Uh but um <clears throat> But yeah, okay, so when it comes to things that are in the first column in the bottom, so basically the first column is divided into three parts. This is the column of primary doctrine. And the three parts are the gospel, okay? So you have the elements of the gospel there, and um, without that you can't be saved. Then there's a section called dogma, and this is not exhaustive, all right, this is not an exhaustive list, list of what we're dogmatic about as Christians, but you've got things like the existence of heaven and hell, the Trinity, the bodily return of Christ, these things that aren't necessarily uh, going to make it into every gospel presentation, but they are essential to understanding who God is and who man is. And then you have the third section called practice, and that's where we have the concept of baptism the concept of evangelism, human sexuality, the necessity of prayer, all of these things, and gender roles is located in that section of the first column, just to give you an idea of, of what we're talking about. Right. And so be, being in that first in that first column, uh, I think we received an email a while back from a gentleman who was saying that that should not be in the first column because you can be you can have different views on gender roles and yet still be a Christian. And from our perspective, that first column represents what is historic Orthodox Christianity, right? That is yeah. on a broader scale. Uh, obviously, we, like we said earlier, there are aspects of the gospel that, you, that, that does represent our salvation, where if we, mm-hmm. affer- whether we affirm or deny that. Then there's aspects of some aspects of, of practice, and, and things like that, where we're not saying you're not a Christian if you differ on these things, but we are saying that you have left historic Orthodox Christian teaching 
that has been clearly taught by God's church over the centuries. And, and we're saying, with certainty, you will be judged for this by God. So, for instance, the other things, some of the other things that are in that practice category of the first column, uh, like baptism, you can go your whole life and not get baptized, refuse to be baptized. That doesn't mean you're not saved, but it certainly means you're being disobedient, and you will have to give an account for your disobedience. Mm, mm. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, they embraced lying. They they rejected the biblical morality of truth-telling. Now, are they going to be in heaven? Only God knows, but they certainly were judged. Um, Paul talked about taking communion incorrectly. That doesn't mean that those people were lost, but they were certainly judged. Judgment begins with the house of God, yes. and and we, what we're doing when we're putting it in the first column is we are saying we are certain about these things. When they move to the second column, that's when we move into we might be wrong. Okay, uh, first column is we're certain about them. You could be lost or saved on some of these things. Only God knows, um, but we do know just from a plain interpretation of Scripture there is certainty around these issues. Amen. Anyway, um, let's, let's go ahead and lay down, down a definition, definition for complementarianism. What do you, just what do you have in front, front of you there? What is complementarianism? This is an article from gotquestions.org, another great resource that we highly recommend. If you're not familiar with that website, uh, gotquestions.org, all kinds of great Bible answers to any kind of Bible question you might have. Um, but they have an article on complementarianism, and they give this definition, complementarian, excuse me, complementarianism is the teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God, and that men and women are created to complement or complete each other. Complementarians believe that the gender roles found in the Bible are purposeful and meaningful distinctions that, when applied in the home and church, promote the spiritual health of both men and women. Embracing the divinely ordained roles of men and women furthers the ministry of God's people and allows men and women to reach their God-given potential. All right, so, I mean, in a, just a fundamental sense, when we affirm complementarianism, we are affirming God's particular design for the two biological sexes that he created uh, before the fall. So before sin ever entered the world in the perfect environment, God lovingly, purposely created gender roles for men and women. And this is rooted in Scripture. If it's not rooted in Scripture, we should reject it. That's a, a good rule of thumb. Uh, but we see this in the Genesis account when God created man, and then he created woman out of man, and he created woman as a helper suitable for man. This is Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And it says, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. God took out one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place, and God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Uh, for this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That was the environment God created, man and woman, different but complementary. 
Amen. Thoughts on that, Ken? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking maybe you would start talking at that point. Oh, yeah, I see that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's that, you know, when, when it comes to you know, complementarian theology and the Genesis account, it is an important distinction to make that this is how God created man and women to be. Like, this is not something that arose after the fall. This was how God created them in their sinless perfection. So there are, there are some that would argue against this position by arguing that the generals that we see in Scripture are a result of the fall. But it, it seems to be pretty clear that it's actually rooted in creation order and the way yeah. God designed men and women to be, not a result of, well, now you've fallen into sin, and so as a result, I'm giving you these roles to keep but rather it is because, no, I have designed you to be this way. Right. And there are a couple of New Testament uh, passages that explicitly teach that aspect of it. Uh, One is 1 Timothy 2, which is a hot-button passage Mm. when it comes to these issues. But Paul's reasoning here, when he says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Okay, That's his teaching. Uh, But to remain quiet, he says. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So that, that's verse 14 about the deception aspect. But verse 13 was centered on the creation aspect. Adam was created first, mm-hmm. then Eve. And he's using that as a reasoning as to why uh, men are leaders, and they are the ones uh, who are supposed to protect and provide for women. Uh, another place where this can be seen is in uh, the book of First Corinthians, um, where Paul talks about headship in First Corinthians. And he says in First Corinthians 11.3, I want you to understand. Okay, that's, so that should always make our ears perk up. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So just as within the Trinity, the Father is, um, he's the one who appoints the Son, he's the one who is authoritative uh, functionally within the role, his role within the Trinity, uh, the Son submits to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. Just as that's going on within the Godhead, so in human relationships, though we are equal ontologically in our being, men and women are both made in the image of God, we are both human beings, Uh, there is a functional aspect where the man is appointed to lead woman. And and that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow because it just sounds so barbaric and lowbrow, doesn't it? Certainly, yeah, certainly does to, to many. And I think some people have knee jerk reactions that assumes things that complementarian theology doesn't believe or teach. Uh, for instance, oh, does this mean that, you know, you think that women are worthless? Absolutely not, right? The, the, the Bible is very clear that women are created in the image of God, just as, man, as men are, and that there is an equality of value and worth and dignity between men and women. That is abundantly clear in all of scriptures, and anyone saying otherwise is not operating with a biblical framework. Right. 
but that doesn't mean like like you just explained about the Trinity about how there's a a functional uh, a functional subordination of the Son in uh, how He is uh, submitting to the Father. There is to be that role that is played out between the husband and the wife, the man and the woman, as well. And yeah. it's not a it's not an issue of ontological. That's a big word that probably I shouldn't be bringing into the conversation. It's not a it's not a uh, it's not about inherent dignity, worth, or value. It's about what role are we designed to fill as right. God's creation. Yeah, because we believe Jesus is Lord of all. And when we say all, we mean every particle of the universe. Uh, we, we believe everything that exists uh, in heaven or on earth, Jesus is Lord of. And then we turn around and say, and he submits, the Lord Jesus submits to the Father. Now, did we just make him less Lord because we say he submits to the Father? Well, no, absolutely not. He is still absolutely 100% Lord and King authority over all things. Yet functionally, out of his own will, and because of the design, the beautiful design of God, the Son submits to the Father. And in human relationships, we see that, that function and that design play out among men and women and children. Um where you've got the wife who submits to her husband and the children who are to submit to both mother and father. Uh, it's a beautiful reflection of, um, of the Godhead. Yeah, and these roles that God has created us to fulfill complement each other. That's why it's called complementarianism. It's not that one is superior to the other, but that the two complement each other and that they, they fit perfectly alongside of each other. And, and so we want to make that clear as well. Now, the biggest opposing view to complementarianism is a view called egalitarianism. And egalitarian thinking comes from a French word just meaning equal. So when someone is uh, seeking to impose an egalitarian view, they're seeking to make things equal. And when we're using that word in uh, relation to men and women, egalitarianism rejects the idea that there is a leading and submitting relationship between men and women that is inherently tied to their biological sex. But egalitarianism says, um, you know, those gender roles don't exist. It's merely uh, utilitarian, essentially, that as men and women are together in the home or in the church— there are some who are going to be leaders, men and women, some who are going to submit, men and women, um, but it's not tied to their sex at all, and it rejects the biblical teaching that says it is tied to their biological sex because of God's design. And we should probably have an egalitarian explain all this in his or her own words, even though there's not really a monolith out there. We would need to examine like two or three or four different egalitarians, but that's, in a nutshell, the gist of egalitarianism. Yeah, that, that, that those distinctions are essentially not binding, right? That, that there are not distinctions between yeah. the roles that men and women ought to fulfill, and that, that they can, they're interchangeable in their yes. ro- the roles that they can fulfill. Yep, yep, absolutely. And so um, egalitarians reject the notion of biblical manhood and womanhood, uh, biblical masculinity and femininity, uh, you, you would have to to be consistent with that view. Whereas as complementarians, we believe that biblical manhood and womanhood is a good concept for us to study and for us to explore, to seek application in. 
and, and for us to teach as we understand it more from the scriptures themselves, it's a good thing for us to teach other people. Um, and again, this affects both the home and the church. It also affects society. But this episode, we're just focusing on the home and the church. Those two things are inextricably tied. If you if you're egalitarian at home, you are going to pursue egalitarianism in the church. Uh, if you are complementarian in the home, you are going to pursue that in the church as well. Uh, you really can't be one in one place and the other in the other. It it just doesn't work uh, that way. So um, that's an important thing to remember. And I, I wrote a book about this once upon a time. It came out a little over three and a half years ago. The only book I've ever written, uh, the only time I've been published uh, with a with a book is the book, You're the Husband. And you can find that on the internet. I don't know how much it is on Amazon now. Let me look that up. You're the Husband by Jeremy Howard. It is available in print and in Kindle and in audiobook. Paperback is 1142, though there are six used from 598. Shazam. And you can get the Kindle version for 299 after credits. Or five ninety nine before credits, and I don't know what that means. Did you read your own book? Or did they yeah, get I need to read it more often no, than no, I no. do. I mean, for the audiobook. No, no, I was actually the first audiobook that this publisher ever had because I won a little contest thing, and I don't even I don't know who the guy is who read it. I haven't read the reviews on here for quite a while. Um, had one from August. That says the perfect book at the perfect moment. Excellent book. Helped me a lot at the perfect time from a guy named Nelson. Nelson, that encourages me. I, I Sorry, it took me almost two months to see that. If you're listening to this somehow, <laughs> thank you, Nelson. I'm glad it helped you. God bless you. <laughs> so, there you go. Very good. It's a, it's a great book for younger men in particular. Uh, that's That's really who it was written for. As, so. Yeah, as they're considering marriage, as they're considering what it means to be the husband, to be the man of the household, good resource. Now, the idea for this episode came about because you and I were poloing each other about uh, random things in the day, and something that came up was <laughs> our treatment of our wives. <laughs> uh Oh, it was the day, yeah, it was the day I was going to the doctor. I remember where I was when we were talking about it. Oh, um, yeah. And <laughs> we were talking about opening doors. And Well, I guess we should back up. Yeah. You, you, you tell the story, because you'll probably tell it more fairly than I would. Yeah, so <laughs> Jeremy's got this thing where he likes to tease me about how if we're poloing and... It, it's happened. It's happened quite frequently, especially in some of our. <laughs> you're just laughing over there. <laughs> uh, this has happened quite frequently, especially when my wife and I are traveling longer distances. Um, for like, okay, I'm a church planter. We've raised support. We travel for support raising and things like this. Speaking in different churches, and some of these are quite long traveling days. Here come the excuses. Yeah. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and so sometimes there would be times where we would be, we use the Marco Polo app to communicate with one another and I would be in the passenger seat and my wife would be driving. And that is just like rank heresy for Jeremy. 
He sees. Yeah, I would say something like, oh, I thought you were a complimentarian, Ken. Yeah. Why, why are you sitting in the passenger seat? Right. <laughs> or he'd make all kinds of jokes about stuff. And I mean, there I am just sitting along in the passenger seat. And it's happened not once or twice, but probably a handful of times to the point where there'd be times where I would polo while I was driving and I would start the polo and be like, yes, I'm actually driving now. And then go on and say whatever the, the polo was about. And so we were just talking about those interactions and about why, where, where, where we're coming from on, on some of that. Yeah, and it, and it came out in that conversation that you open the car door for your wife every time you guys are in the car together and stop. Even when you are in the passenger seat and she's driving, you get around and open her driver's door. Yep. Driver's side door. That's right. And I, I never do that for my wife. And so then it was like, oh, well, maybe you you are the complimentarian one, and I'm just an egalitarian jerk. There are no gender roles. Get your own door. <laughs> <laughs> but then we were talking about when we walk into a building, I always open the door for my wife. Did we didn't we talk about that? Mm-hmm. I think so. And and you don't always open the door for your no, wife. No, I do. When you go into a building. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yo! I remember it was the ordering at a restaurant. Oh, yes, because that that one came up too. Right. And you you never order. Uh, I don't order for, order for your wife. No. Like it's never even crossed your mind. Yeah, and it, for me, not really either. <laughs> it it seems like something that happened forty years ago that people don't really do anymore. But I guess there are people that do. And so anyway, that just got us discussing all these different applications of complementarianism. Where for me, it's like, oh, the man should always drive when you're going somewhere, and for you, that never really was a thing. Well, yeah, there's, there's a couple of factors with that just, just by way of explanation for, I don't even know if it's necessary to explain it, but you don't need to defend yourself. No, it's a, the the application side of it is largely third column, isn't it? I mean, I would would say so. This is just conscience stuff. So, so for me, it's like, oh yeah, the, it's just natural in my head, the man drives. And a lot of that probably has to do with the way I was raised. I think my dad always drove. Um, and for you, it's like natural in your mind. You open the door for a lady when you're exiting a car. Mm-hmm. It's just that just clicks. And then for me, I never thought about that really. I mean, I thought about it a couple of times, but I didn't have enough energy to do it. So <laughs> I, I, I just didn't do it. <laughs> but, uh, but those applications of complementarianism can be, uh, well, I, they are for the vast majority. It's just conscience issue stuff. And, and that's what we were talking about. And that's what we kind of want to explore for the rest of the episode today is, these applications of complementarianism, since we've stated our position, we believe it's biblical, this is our theological stance on biblical manhood and womanhood, how much freedom do we have then in the application? And the stuff we're bringing up right now about opening car doors and driving and ordering off a menu, that's all pretty petty stuff, right? In the grand but, scheme of things, for sure, yeah. But but you can get into some bigger items, like like decision-making as husbands and wives, especially as mothers and fathers, decision-making... Um, when husband and wife don't agree, mm-hmm. um, or if, if it's understood when you go into those conversations about making decisions, if it's just understood between you and your spouse, that one of you is basically going to run the conversation and the other one's just there to agree or to shut up. Um, that's, 
an interesting uh, way of going about making decisions too. And and a lot of times, and especially in complementarian circles, that can it can be abused to where the man does that. The husband treats the wife that way. But there are definitely marriages out there where it's the other way. For sure. And the man is just to sit down and shut up. So can we even start drawing lines on any of this, do you think? I mean, I think, I think that what it comes down to is we, got, we have to look at things on a principle-based level, right? That the underlying principles behind why we do what we do, right? So like with, with even, even in some of the more like the innocuous stuff, the, some of the, or some of the um, stuff that seems more trivial with like opening car doors and who drives, you know, what, what, is, what is the thought process and what is behind the motivations for those actions, uh, I think that gets to the principle of it that is applied in other aspects of life, if that makes sense. Um, and then when it comes to some of the other more weightier things like decision-making and then just the relationship between the husband and the wife, there are very clear principles in Scripture that, yeah, we they may be applied in different ways, but the principles, the undergirding principles are there, and there are times where I think we can very clearly say that the application of this has gone amok. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can say for sure, though, so we'll just stay on the topic of decision-making, um, you know, conversations that husbands and wives have that where they make decisions about where they're going to live, where they're going to go to church, how they're going to school their children, all those big, big things. Um, we can say with certainty that the man is responsible. So whether or not, he is leading well, he is held responsible by God as the head of his house yes. for whatever decision comes out of that house. So uh, he, he can't stand before God and say, well, I was letting her make the decision. Right. Well, she's not the responsible one. God has appointed the man as the head of the house, and the head will be held responsible. So um, he, he doesn't say, oh, God, I actually chose a plan other than yours, so can you judge me based on those standards? <laughs> that's that's not how that works. Well, that so, has a um, uh, whole different feel to it when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so basically what has to happen then, within the freedom that they have as Christians with consciences, and we do believe in the freedom of the conscience and that God will guide different couples in different directions and all that. We just have to recognize that the motivation has to be biblical on both for both parties. So for the man, and Ephesians five, right, is the mm. it's the heart of all this. For the man, his motivation needs to be to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the woman, her motivation needs to be to respect her husband and submit to him as uh, the church submits to Christ. And that that's hard for a lot of women to do, but that's because we live in a fallen world with perverse desires, and it's hard to see the good in God's plan sometimes. But that that is just the way it is. So even though there's freedom, those motivations will guide us in that freedom and keep us from um, serious error, wouldn't mm. you say? Yes, I, I agree. And when, and when we get these things out of whack, out of tilt... Um, you know, it, it can be easy maybe for a guy to say, well, 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 if I'm the man of the house, and then he kind of becomes a little a tyrant within his home, and that's not healthy, and that's not very complimentary, or complim- complimentary, whatever. <laughs> yeah, complimentary, you're complimentary. right. Complimentary, <laughs> and it's not very complimentary within the household where yeah. he is abdicating his responsibility to love and serve his wife in that instance when he becomes a tyrant within the home. 
And so that's not healthy either. To win, and, and the same is true for the wife. If she simply becomes a, spot, a, a place where she's like, well, I'm just here to, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, the furthest extreme of that would be. Um, and she's not, uh, and if she just views herself as not worthy of contributing to a conversation, well, things have gone too far. You know, and and we need to rein that in, and we need to guide that by the biblical principles that are laid forth. Yeah, that would be her misunderstanding her value and her her giftedness and her role in in life and in the family that God has given her. Mm -hmm. Um, Which you know can sometimes sometimes those things can seem holy, like well, I'm just going to go the extreme um, in. This, you know, in this case, it would be submission. I'm going to go to the extreme side of submission, and that can appear like the holier option when really that's, again, giving up on your role in in the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, God hasn't called women to um, be non-participants in the home uh, with with the husband and decision making, and God has not called the men to fly solo and to beat down their wives and their decision making. Uh, the motivation on both ends has to be love. Uh, that's that's the key in Ephesians five. Love yes. is the motivation. The women aren't to worship their husbands as they worship Christ. Uh, they're to submit to their husbands in love. And the men aren't supposed to, uh, you know, rule and reign and judge their wives as though they're the authority of the universe as Christ is. They're to lead in love as mm. Christ leads in love. That's the idea. Amen. So, um, so let's to throw another application out there for complementarianism in the home, this idea of stay-at-home parents. We're comfortable when it's a stay-at-home mom. We get pretty uncomfortable in our circles when it's a stay-at-home dad. How much freedom is there in the family, in God's design for the family, for men to stay at home and spend their time as like a full-time job raising the children while the mother is the breadwinner of the home who provides financially uh, for, for the home. How much freedom is there in that? What say you, Kenneth Burton, Chip Chase? It, this, is, this is where I think things get, begin to get difficult with, with this, because obviously I... <laughs> Tread carefully, <Yeah>. my son. <laughs> well, you, I'm just, you know, you know... You don't want to make exceptions based off of experience, right? And and yet there are there are situations that we are aware of where uh, there are physical limitations of the husband that makes it difficult to impossible for him to be working in a a uh, a capacity that could provide for the family. And so as a result, uh, the wife is the one who is the the primary breadwinner for the family, and he is at home with the kids. And I've seen that. And so to make hard and fast rules is difficult, but then also recognizing that it, it, it seems to be the consistent pattern of Scripture that men are the, the leaders, the guiders, the protectors, and the providers. And as a general rule, the women are... Uh, to raise the children in and to keep the home. Well, Titus 2 offers some instruction here. Um, Titus 2, verse 3, Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, 
nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that, okay, this is the older women, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Very clear teaching here that the women are to love their husbands and their children and to be workers at home. No such teaching exists for men in the New Testament. Um, So what do we make of this? Isn't this like a clear passage that shows that the women are to remain home while the men go out and provide? How how do we exegetically get around this? There is a principle in which... um, There's a biblical principle that reveals to us women are gifted, particularly gifted, at caring for children in a full-time capacity. Um, They are the ones who tend to their children in a a loving, tender way, um, who can care for the home in a way different than men. Now, so I'm not saying that to the extent of, well, men can't do that <laughs> because uh, men have a role to play in raising the children. Mm-hmm. Men have a role to play in the home. Um, and that's an but, indispensable role as well. Yes, it is. It yeah. absolutely is. Um, it's not an option. Uh, when th- when it's taken away, you see that it's not optional to get a godly outcome with just one parent. You need both. But uh, we also see as a principle in Scripture that men are responsible to provide. So you think of Abigail and Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. Uh, Abigail, who eventually became one of David's wives, (laughs) uh, she was married to a man named Nabal. He was a worthless man, it says, a worthless man. Uh, Men who don't provide for their own families are worthless. Uh, It talks about in, um, I believe, 1 Timothy 5, a man who won't provide for his own household is worse than an unbeliever, okay? Men are called to provide. They're responsible uh, to be the providers in the home. Adam was tasked with keeping the garden. He, he was to work and, and bring forth fruit from the ground and provide. So this is uh, the role that God has given men, and uh, the way that God has designed it as a general rule of thumb is men, men provide, And if the wife works, great. If she doesn't work, great. Men provide. That's it. Now, when it comes to the idea of stay-at-home dads, able-bodied men who choose to stay home while their wives provide, I have an issue with that. I mean, I'm I'm totally fine saying I've got an issue with that. Where I start losing the issue with that is when they're less (laughs) able-bodied, okay? Um, There's obviously difficulty there. The, we will always have the poor with us. We will always have the um, those with infirmities among us who we need to care for in special senses. And in some cases, within their own house, they can take care of it by the wife going to, to work. God has given her skills and abilities. This is Proverbs 31. She trades at the gate. This is Lydia with the purple linens in Acts 16. Um, we see principles like this in Scripture of women doing things, and they are gifted to do those things outside of the home. Um but I think it's only in a special case, like a physical impediment, that a woman goes out to do her thing while the man 
forfeits the responsibility to provide and just stays home with the kids. Uh, God has designed it the other way around. And um, again, this is one of those things where it's a conscience issue to a large degree, and they will, they're accountable to God for it. I'm not their judge, but that's what I see from the scriptures. Amen. And I would agree with that 100%. In fact, I almost, I kind of feel like I need to repent a little bit right now because, you know, when we first started talking about this and I was just kind of, kind of him hawing a little bit and, and just trying to be very careful with how I selected my words. I don't need to apologize for what the Bible says. This is what the Bible yeah. says. Yeah. So just roll, go, yeah, just, this is what the Bible says. I believe it. And, and that's what I teach and that's what we practice. And if, if you're offended by that, well, sorry, you're offended at the Bible. Not Yeah. So yeah, I, I should, uh, I need to be a little bit more Assertive that way, more, I suppose. Have a little more unction. That's right. You have a little yeah. more unction. So, because I'm, my, my mind immediately went to, oh, what about all these exception places? Well, well, that's not really where we need to start, or is it? It needs to start with, what does the Word of God say? And then we, we expand from there and understand there are uh, extreme circumstances where it makes, it makes the general rule um, difficult to impossible. Yeah. And God has grace for that. Yep. Yep. If, uh, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. First Timothy five, eight, pretty strong words. Very strong. Yes. Um, we should probably move on to church at this point. Yeah. Uh, we're about, cause we're, we've been going on for a while. Uh, some applications in the church with men and women, elders and deacons, uh, that's a clear at place of application. There's no such thing as a female elder. Agree? Agree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you didn't, we would have to really back up the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Which, and we, and elders, that includes pastors, right? We believe that pastors are that, elders. Yeah, elders are pastors. Yes, elders are pastors, yeah. pastors are elders, yes. Yep. Um, okay, now, second question. There's no such thing as a female deacon. Agree? That's where things are tricky, aren't they? <laughs> but why? When you read First Timothy three, you've got the qualifications side by side. Husband of one wife—that's a qualification for both, right? Yeah. Uh, the um, yeah. Which what text? Okay, I'm I'm going to be scratching my memory here. It's in Romans that there's a re- reference to deaconess. Sixteen. Romans sixteen. It's just with Phoebe. Just with Phoebe. Jesus. It says Phoebe's a servant. Uh, in Romans 16, I believe, verse 1. Which is what it's the same root word as deacon, diakonos. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Which Amy Bird, in her book that I haven't read, uh, her book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, there's an eye-popping title for you. Right. Amy Bird has a chapter entitled, When Paul Passed the Baton to Phoebe. And I don't know what she said there, but I don't see that in the New Testament. I don't think that's what's going on in Romans 16. Because it's really just a brief statement there, isn't it, in Romans 16? Yep. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, ESV says, a servant of the church in Sencrea. That one place. Yeah, Phoebe. So, yeah, there's, in our circles, again, this is leaving liberal denominations that appoint female pastors, like the United Methodist Church and a lot of Lutheran churches and all that stuff. Leaving those, that mindset, going into more conservative circles, 
uh, complementarian circles, there is disagreement about can women be deacons. My church has a history of having female deacons. We haven't had a female deacon in over 20 years, probably. Um, I have a little book that John MacArthur wrote, I think in the 80s, like a little thin, almost like a pamphlet about deacons. Hmm. And he talks about deaconesses uh, as a thing, which, yeah, uh, there you go. I'm not super comfortable with it, but I'm also not super uncomfortable with it. I, I don't know where I am on that. I, It's not something I'm going to get excited about and make an issue of and try to get female deacons appointed, uh, you know, in the near future. But Yeah, uh, I've, I've never yeah. been a part of a church that has had deaconesses, but there is one that's a part of our fellowship not too far from us that is, uh, they have deaconesses. Yeah. So. It's an interesting conversation, um, but I think maybe more relevant and where things get trickier and something I'm seeing more and more and more, especially on church websites, you'll have the list of their staff and there will be pictures of women with the title children's ministry director or youth leader or something like that, where they're not using the word pastor. And this is kind of set apart from deacon responsibilities, so deacon isn't really relevant for this. But they're not pastors, but they're director, ministry directors. What the heck does that mean? Because <laughs> that's not a biblical term at all, right? So what? what is a ministry director? Uh, what, what have you made of that historically? Well, there's a lot of times where I, I will read that and I'll say, well, that's just a fancy that's just a fancy way of trying to get around the fact that these are they're functioning as some level of some kind of pastor and they're trying to get around that fact by giving it a different title. And I don't know, obviously we don't necessarily know the the actual details of what is going on at those churches, but it certainly raises the question. Yeah, well, and the issue is 1 Timothy 2, right? Where 1 1 Timothy 2 states very clearly that a woman is not to have any authority over a man or to teach a man. Um, it says, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Ouch, Paul, you just punched everybody. Well, there's the statement. That's the inspired scripture that has all authority. So what is necessarily wrong then with giving a woman a title that isn't pastor or elder and it only covers areas like children, youth, or women. It doesn't include men. Can a, can a woman be a women's ministry director or a youth group leader? Where's the where's the line on that? Is is there freedom of conscience on that, or is there a clear line being crossed? Do you think? I think. Sorry, I've turned into like the interviewer. Yeah, you're the interviewer, and you're asking very hard questions. <laughs> what what a good interview is right. So I think part of the issue, too, is at what age does a boy become a man? Yeah. Because that is going to affect at what level are, you know, the merged Sunday school class with a, with a female teacher. You know, where, where does that cross the line into violating these commands from, from Paul to Timothy? Well, yeah, what did, what did Paul and Timothy view as a man? That's all that matters for this conversation, right? Not as where do we today draw the line. Yes. It's where... What was in their mind when they said that? So they would have probably likely had the uh, the Jewish conception of the bar mitzvah of that would have been the 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 turning point of you're no longer a boy you are now a man, um, which I believe is around thirteen years old twelve yeah, 13, 13. 13. 
So that's, you know, in our modern conception, a 13-year-old is still a child, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, many teenagers... In our modern conception, yeah. those in their 20s who still live in mom and yeah. dad's basement and are on their insurance and don't have a job, they're, they're children. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> the phrase adolescence has expanded greatly, and adolescence has extended th- all the way through mid twenties in many cases. And that's, yes, that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, it is. Well, so, I mean, but are you saying then that if a 14 year old is being taught by a woman in a Sunday school class, that that's a sinful event taking place in a church? Or are you going to go that far? I'm tempted to <laughs> truth. Truthfully. I mean, you, I think this probably falls in the same category as stay at home dads, right? Where, we're uncomfortable, mm. and it seems like a clear violation of scriptural <laughs> standards. Um, we wouldn't do it, but at the end of the day, it is between them and God. Um, we don't have a verse that says men are not allowed to stay home with the kids while the wife works. There's not a verse that's that clear. There's not a verse that says a boy becomes a man at 13 years old. Correct, correct. Yeah. So we're, we can't get goofy and put an age number on it um, because of that, but we do see a very strong principle that if you're going to get near to crossing that or just go ahead and fly by that that principle, I think you're in danger. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think there's judgment there. Um, it's a violation of gender, the gender roles that God has designed. And I don't know, uh, our Andrew Rappaport episode that um, released last week, when when he was telling that story about being in the Philippines and someone approached him about a woman pastor and he's, he, the situation was, well, look, there are no men. Yeah. There are no men stepping up. And so the woman said, we need to have church. So um, she started preaching and he was asked, you know, to evaluate that situation. And he said, fire her and close the church. <laughs> right. Um, well, <gasps> yeah. I mean, <laughs> at what point do we justify Sin with pragmatism. Yeah. Hopefully, at no point, sin should never be justified. And that, and so, if you cannot participate in these things out of faith, well, then for you to do it is sin. Um, and if you do believe that it's right, but you have no scriptural backing whatsoever, then you may want to question yourself and ask yourself why you think it's okay. Mm. It's tough, though, isn't it? Yeah, because that that begins to bleed into the question of of single women missionaries. Yes, it does. You know, traveling into these remote tribes and leading Bible studies and doing these things and, and all that sort of thing. Man, oh man. Yeah, yeah. We should do a whole episode on missions. That would be fun. Uh, w- one more thing, one more application in the church. Uh, the Mike Pence rule, formerly known as the Billy Graham rule, formerly known as the rule that Jesus gave us. <laughs> no, uh, uh, no the, the, the rule of thumb that basically says men and women need to be careful about when they are alone together in the church, uh, or not in the church, uh, just in, in, in life yeah, in general. In general. Um, because men are men and women are women, God has designed us uh, differently, and we the, the opposite sex is attract um, outside of sinful perversion uh, that we read about in Romans 1. But uh, in, in the church, and this is actually one of the wisdom scenario questions I bring up to uh, our elders in training that I thought of. Um, so I'll just, I'll just throw it up there to you and just see your response. Oh, boy. 
an application in the church. Say there's a married, there are two married couples in the church. The man from one couple has a passion for children's ministry, but his wife does not. The wife in the other family has a passion for children's ministry, but the husband does not. The husband and wife from these two families get together to form a children's ministry in the church because they're both passionate about children's ministry and their spouses are not. Is that okay? And is it okay for them to meet about it and talk about it and plan it and all of those things since they are the ministry leaders for that ministry? What do you think? Or does that violate the inspired Mike Pence rule? (laughs) It certainly violates the Mike Pence slash Billy Graham rule, that's for sure. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, I know I would certainly be quite uncomfortable in that kind of scenario myself, or if it was my wife, uh, being, I would be very uncomfortable with that. And so, yeah, I, that's a, that is a no fly, no fly zone for me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Can you conceive of a situation in a church where that would be okay for other people to do or, uh, and, and again, there are no easy answers to these things, but these are real life scenarios, though. Too, I mean, these are things that you run into in churches. It, um, it's difficult for me to conceive of a scenario where that would be wise. Yeah. To to just completely say, you know what, this is going to be a regular thing, and you know, there's no any, you know, there's no a third person, there's no anything. Not not because you know. You know, and it's not because we want to go just go around viewing, you know, each other of the opposite sex of just being like, oh, this, you are, you are the perpetual temptress or you are the perpetual tempter of me. We don't want to view things that way because if if that's our constant viewpoint, I don't think that's healthy for just normal relationships with individuals. No. And that's, and that's totally living in fear and and it creates fear-based decision-making, which is wrong in every way. But that doesn't mean that we can just swing so far the other way and say, well, I don't want to view things in this fear-based way, but so I'm just going to go do whatever, you know, it, there, there certainly seems to be a line of wisdom where that's kind yes. of between those two things where it's like, okay, maybe this isn't the wisest thing to do. Tragically, I think this is the first time we brought up that word wisdom in the whole episode. And that's what all this really has to do with is, is wisdom. Um, there's of course the biblical principles that, are unchanging, but the application of these principles requires lots of wisdom, and we have to ask ourselves, is this wise or is this foolish? Um, and if we cannot say with full confidence that it's a wise thing to do, we really need to consider not not doing yeah. that thing. And uh, yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable, yeah. right? And whatever is not from faith is sin. Yep. So yeah, if we're not fully convinced in our own mind... Then that is that is to be a that is a dividing line. Yeah, it is to use a phrase from Mister James White. <laughs> so, yeah. So when it comes to complementarian application, first, I think the first question we need to ask is, what does the Bible say? And we need to f- just form the baseline principles from that. What does the Bible say? And then from there we expand upon that into the arena of wisdom and seeking seeking what to apply those principles in a wisdom-inspired way. 
Is that a good phraseology? In a wise way? Yeah. 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 That's it. We need to be wise. We need to be um, firm with truth and wise in application. Or our old, uh, the old motto of our church that I discovered recently from the 1970s. Oh, I can't wait. We need to be fundamental in theology and liberal in love. A plus. Cute, isn't it? A plus. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Well, what an episode. Um, You know what? I'm going to go ahead and say this for those who have listened to the end. Next episode, we're going to do a giveaway. We're going to do a a big giveaway next episode. That's exciting. You and I haven't talked about it, but we're doing it. I just decided it. Executive decision. Shazam. Sometimes you just have to make... You just have to make those kinds of decisions, uh, un- unilateral decision-making. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are so grateful for you all listening to this episode. This, this is the second-to-last episode in Season 2. We do have one more episode from Samuel Say that we highly encourage you to make yourselves available to listen to that because that is going to be a fantastic interview that we conducted with him. Uh, But after that, we will take a little bit of a break, so there won't be uh, content coming your way for a little while, at least not the normal type that we have been giving you uh, for the last several months. So just be aware of that. But we encourage you, uh, please, if you have not given us a rating or review, to do that. You can do that on, I was about to say iTunes, but that does not exist. Apple Podcasts. Uh, You can find us there and give us that rating or review. Find us on YouTube and subscribe to us there and hit that bell notification button. That helps us out quite a bit, actually. Give us a react. Give us a comment. Interact with us. Uh, Send us a tweet at DoTheology. Send us an email, show at DoTheology.com. We'd love to know what you think, what you like, what you don't like. If we think we are just, uh, you know, misogynistic sexist, uh, pig-headed, whatever else you want to throw in there, let us know that, and and we'll tell you why you're wrong. So <laughs> <laughs> that really encourages them to reach yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. So, any final thoughts? Nope. Listen next week. That's it. That's it. Well, until next time. Do- Theology. Alaska is so big. True story. How did Alaska get to be that big? Well, it goes back to when Alaska was a little boy. Pangea. Pangea.